people like to use the word criminal, inmate, and many of those things to, to forget that they're talking about a human. Um, so this is humanitarian crisis and our department of corrections and our pardons and paroles for, for that lack of, I mean, just as a system failure, is so focused on building new buildings that they're willing to allow other humans to be collateral damage to get there. All righty, welcome back uh, Alabama Politics this week. Uh, we are happy, as always, to be joined by Representative Chris England. Um, and, and I, I, you know, you, you've come on a lot of times and we've talked about a lot of different things. And um, I, I think this one, because we want to talk about mainly the, uh, the parole board um, and, and, the, and, and the Department of Corrections overall as well. And, and I, because I think that you're one of the few people that, that hammer away at this thing. And, and believe me, I, I get banging your head against the wall. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, for, so first of all, I want to say I, I appreciate it. And I know a lot of other people do. And I, and I appreciate you coming on today as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, the prison issue in Alabama is possibly one of the most comprehensive crises and failures in our history. And we are at a crossroads of massive problems and extreme lack of leadership. And you can kind of see what that's getting us. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we spoke earlier this week about, uh, and I know you've tweeted a, a, a bunch about it as well and, and talked to, to other folks about uh, one of our biggest problems, uh, as we always talk about prison overcrowding and everything else, but one of our biggest problems that we have is with our parole board, our pardons and parole board. Um, and under its current leadership there, it is denying a, an astronomical percentage of, of paroles. Um, and, and there is some, there seems to be some racial bias, you know, whether intentional or not, uh, in, in granting those paroles. I, I don't, what can be done to, to change that? Um, there are some things. And, and first, I want to make sure we understand, like, I don't think people understand that, like, in 2010, we passed a law that was supported by the governor and the, and the attorney general, and then subsequently, um, Lee Waffney was appointed, appointed chair. Uh, that law created a system where there is, it's, you got the director, who at the time was Charlie Graddick, who is now Kim Ward, but the board is separate. So their decision-making authority is completely separate from that, from really any oversight at all. So I think it's very important to recognize that administratively, uh, uh, it's probably it's controlled by now Cam Ward, and it's but decision-making is strictly up to the board. And I also want to stress that the 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 board's decision-making power is a hundred percent completely discretionary which means that every single person that appears before the board, uh, every parole applicant could be facing a different standard than the person before them. Also, which means that if it's completely subjective, that means that you as an applicant really don't know what it takes to uh, satisfy a threshold that really doesn't exist. 
And when you think about that, and you put it in context, that is completely subjective. Um, the, the board has 100% discretion. It becomes really interesting when you see a, a racial disparity of that size develop. Because what it suggests is that although the standard is subjective, one thing that is objective is that the applicant's skin color may play a role in whether or not you get that uh, you get released. And yeah. you, don't, you don't even have to, you know, I don't even have to say that, you know, you, it's racist. I mean, it's either explicit or implicit bias that's playing a role in this. But the results sort of speak for themselves. I mean, at some point, when you get 2,200 cases worth of, worth of data, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the pattern is pretty well suggested, pretty well uh, determined, which means that it doesn't matter what each individual person is charged with. At this point, you've got apples and oranges, apples and apples, whatever you want. The yeah. data is what it is now. So we got a pattern that is developed, and now we need to try to figure out how to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, you know, it's because it is. It's a glaring. It's a glaring thing because it, we're not talking about just a, you know, a handful. We're talking about uh, more than double. Uh, more than double white uh, white uh, prisoners have been granted parole uh, over over their black counterparts. It, it just it doesn't. That it's hard for me to get past that number. I mean, if it was just a handful, you could say, ah, okay, well, you know, but it was, you know, fewer, fewer white people up for, uh, up for paroles, uh, and more double, uh, gaining it. It just didn't, I, you know, I don't, and the, here's my other issue is nobody ever answers for anything in the department of corrections or, or the parole board. Nobody ever has to answer to anybody for anything ever. Does it, I mean, you never hear, uh, of any sort of repercussions for anybody. And, and Lee Watney, she, she never answers any questions from anybody. Uh, she's never put under a microscope for the way she's doing the job. Uh, I, and so, I, no, I mean, I've tried to, to talk to her. It, it doesn't happen. She doesn't, you know, you get press releases and you get statements, but when, is, there a, is there some means to hold anybody accountable? Well, uh, public pressure for sure. Um, but, um, the only way you can hold her accountable is through impeachment. And, you know, I haven't been shy about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, and you know, I'm exploring whatever avenues are, that are available, including that to try to at least continue to focus attention on where the, where I think the problem is. Um, and let's, I, I think we also need to be very clear about it's when we were talking about Charlie Graddock initially, Yes, he was a problem, um, but we found out that we didn't necessarily cut the head off the snake, if you know what I mean. And um, there are three members of that board, and she's the chairperson. And I want to. Uh, there's another component to this problem as well. The racial disparity is one, but the fact of the matter is, it's the Bureau of Pardons and Paroles. And it, they barely grant pardons, and they barely grant paroles. And, and a pardon in and of itself, no one I've ever met that's been looking for a pardon gets one because they just want to frame it and put it on their wall. Right. They get it because they've run into a roadblock in their life, and a pardon 
is what it would take to knock the roadblock down, whether it be getting a job, whether it be voting, whether it be getting their gun rights back, many different forms of relief, right? And if someone comes to you and says, I need a pardon because I'm trying to get a job, and then you say, well, I, I deny that pardon, and then they commit another offense, and then you blame them for that, well, it sounds like the system itself is designed to make people fail. And then look at the results and say, I told you that, that, that you know, they never should have been let out or something like that. So, yeah. so, so, and I would now, uh, the, the, the board does not keep up with the demographics on pardons, but I'm willing to bet that it probably tracks the same demographic racial disparity that we see with paroles. And also, oh, I, I'm going, you know, I really can go on for hours because, uh, you know, you just, you know, every time I talk about it, it's like, it's like lighting a fuse. But I also want to point out that the board itself is over a thousand, it's thousands behind in pardons. There are people who apply for a pardon have been waiting for years for a response. And for them to only do 20 a week, 30 a week, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. But there are also people who are eligible for parole that are also waiting for their, op their opportunity to be heard. And they've been waiting for years too. They're hundreds behind on paroles too. So when I tell you that the system is broken beyond repair, there isn't a part of it or a metric of it that's working well. None of it is. Okay. And we can also go into the other part of this argument too, because there will be many people that will tell you that the reason why you don't release people early is because of this, this, this notion that it protects the public, but it doesn't. It actually oper It actually works against that notion. And if we can talk about that further, if you'd like. I, I'd like to, to, before you go too much further than where we are now, Chris, I'd like to see if we can sort of untangle what has created this monster. So my first question is, um, it appears as though from what you're saying, there's only one mechanism of accountability and that is impeachment. There is no other, you're saying there's no political mechanism, there's no regulatory mechanism to hold this board accountable for a lack of productivity uh, or discriminatory practices? No, um, uh, you know, the position of member to be appointed, be on the board, you have to be appointed, which means that the governor appoints you and the Senate uh, confirms you. And um, the, the, and I want, you know, just for a second, full disclosure, what preceded this law passing in 2019 that you can directly create, you can directly correlate the log gem that we have now in our system to the passage of that bill in 2019. Um, uh, what preceded that was a person got out on parole and murdered three people. So uh, as often happens in Alabama, uh, we take the extreme and try to make, try to normalize it and make it the mean so we legislate from that perspective. And while that's a tragedy, and I would never suggest that, you know, a loss of life is something that we just gloss over. Um, as legislators, we're responsible for governing. 
which means that we cannot work from the extremes in any issue because either way it goes, uh, we've got to make sure that the system itself works. So as you, as, back to your, your, your original question, unfortunately, the only way to hold folks um, on the board of pardons and paroles accountable is to is through impeachment. Okay, so uh, <laughs> this is really astounding because it sounds as though, uh, and and forgive me, I don't know the answer to this, which is why I'm asking: is this is these are lifetime appointments, or are there are there term limits? What explain that part of it? Six years. Um, he, he, six he, year. Six year appointment. That's right. She is still have. We have four years of terror to go. Okay. So at that point, then you're saying her, if she were to be replaced, it would probably have to be by another governor, not, you know, or, or, and probably a democratic governor. Right. Okay. And, well, I, I want to say also, but you know, we, we, this process in and of itself, if you just trace the history of, uh, of, of, of Lee Watling, she's a former prosecutor from Jefferson County. Uh, she was, she was put there, in my opinion, because um, she is married to a particular ideology that that believes that um, putting everybody in jail guarantees us some sort of safe a, a safe community or a safe public. Which studies and science and and, and history everything shows that, that that that's absolutely not true. So. Um, just as much of uh, this could be laid at the feet of Steve Marshall, because he played a really, uh, he pushed really hard for the legislation that passed in 2019. He pushed really hard for her appointment. So a lot of this can be laid at his feet as well. And you have to remember, while we're sitting here talking about we need, she needs to be held accountable for inactivity, there are certain people who also only are complete 180 who married themselves to the same ideology and think that she's doing a fantastic job. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, AG mm. Marshall is, is, has been so great in, in keeping our prisons safe as well. I mean, you know, he's, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, as part of his, his deal as well as, you know, is litigating this lawsuit, uh, that's taking place from, from the federal government right now. Uh, and, and over the course of the, that, hell, he's not done anything. Well, put, you put litigation in that regard in quotes because we pay a private attorney for that. Uh, we've made a, the name slips my mind right now, but um, we give them millions and millions of dollars a year uh, to, to litigate this, call, this case. And then, you know, what's funny about that, though, is like the worst is, I don't know if we're even trying to keep it a secret anymore, we believe, just like the, the Department of Justice has alleged, that our prison system is, is worse than the death penalty. I mean, it, we believe it's to the point where we've been scrambling now for four or five years to uh, try to find billions of dollars to build new prisons. So we we acknowledge that our prison system is a mess, but we're paying somebody to go into court and defend us against the allegations that we're essentially admitting by uh, the insatiable pursuit of building new, really new, building new prisons. Yeah. It's amazing. And no, no, it's, uh, 
it's quite a contrast in in uh, common sense uh, but you know it's a um you watch the whole you watch this look at this whole situation all right and there is not i've said this over and over there is not a single piece of this that works the way that it's supposed to work there is not there's nothing that isn't failing under jeff dunn's watch under lee Watkins' watch nothing that isn't failing and and here's what i think where people misunderstand uh, or, or don't realize they're being hurt is if we did it properly, we could rehabilitate many of these people who are in there. Um, but we have turned our backs on, and David wrote a great column this week about the, the new death penalty approach here. And, and I'm sure he, will, he, will, he was going to ask you about that as well. But the, we, we spent all this money on this. And at the same time, We've allowed uh, those education programs and training programs to just melt into almost nothing. Uh, the participation in those programs that has declined over the course of the last 10 years, it, it's thousands by the thousands. And I, what are we hoping to do? Well, here's, here's an interesting Think about it this way, too. Like if you're incarcerated, you've been incarcerated for 15, 20 years, and there's this carrot out there that says, that if you do a um, better yourself, which means get a certificate in something, get, you know, get a degree, get an associate's degree, great, be, you know, you're exemplary um, and you're, you know, no behavioral issues, even in that hell hole, you manage to do the best that you can do. And then you apply for parole. You go in front of the parole board and then they deny you because they said that what you did 25 years ago was too serious in order to allow you to be released. So now what happens to that person after they've done everything the right way and they still get denied? So, I mean, and, and it's like every component of our criminal justice system operates in like a silo and to the point where they believe that what they do doesn't have an impact on the rest of the system. So, you know, as bad a job as Jeff Dunn is doing, imagine trying to manage a population that has no hope. As bad as a job as Jeff Dunn is doing, imagine trying to manage a population where there's no, there's no opportunity that, that your success within their facility does not correlate to early release, right? So imagine dealing with a population that has really just no hope, right? And in, in that same population, doesn't have any COs, maybe one or two for 200 people, but that CO may be the one selling drugs and passing out other uh, illicit, illegal contraband. So like when you say like the system itself, there's no component of it that is operating effectively or efficiently, you are absolutely correct. But remember, we're dealing with an ideology and for 20 some odd years, 30 years, Whenever we get to a crisis situation in most, in most government-related items, it's generally because we've taken people and we've tried to put them somewhere we can forget they exist. Well, for years, it was the popular thing to do. We create a new crime and then make a ridiculous punish, punishment for it. Because I can go back to my constituency and say, I'm keeping you safe because I'm locking these folks up forever. Well, again, that mindset is actually making us less safe. And let me ask you a question. If you lost a loved one 
due to murder, because they were murdered. Do you think it would make a difference to you if that person was on parole or had EOS and ended a sentence? Do you think as a victim that would matter to you? It's a great point. So it's a great point. So think about it this way. If I'm really concerned about public safety, right? And the people that have been there the longest are supposedly the ones that I'm supposed to be scared of the most. Wouldn't it make sense for me to get them out before their sentence ends so they have some supervision and some assistance and not recommitting offenses before they get to a point where they don't feel like they have a choice? So that, that's what that, that's like the whole trick of this. Like somebody will tell you that the longer they stay in, the better we are, but that's really just not the case. Because the longer they stay in, I don't have space for people who really need to be there. And it doesn't just happen on the parole side. It also happens on the local level when you're talking about county jails too. The more people you stuff in there unnecessarily, the less space you're going to have for the folks you absolutely have to have in those facilities to be safe. And you're also creating, uh, you're further creating a culture that, um, as you alluded to, uh, is is ripe with criminality, rife with criminality internally and other dysfunctions that then acculturates, further acculturates people in that way, which then in turn, whenever they do get out, makes recidivism a lot more likely because they are that much more disconnected from the rules and the pace and the, and the tone of regular society. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very tragic. You know, we are, we are doing damage to ourselves by not creating an environment uh, in the prisons that would hopefully uh, lessen the chance of recidivism. Uh, I, you know, Josh, Josh pointed to my column. I want to ask you um, uh, a quick question about that. And then I want to ask you one other quick question. Uh, my first question is, uh, is in reference to my column, which is about the, the, uh, the direction the state seems to be going in and using nitrogen uh, hypoxia as a way to execute people. Uh, do you have any thoughts or concerns about that? Um, it's, it's very difficult for me to square uh, a humane civilization killing people for retribution. Um, I, I have a difficult time squaring that. Uh, in Alabama, um, that sales, though, unfortunately, it's amazing that the pro-life state, what sales here is killing people, but it sales here. Um, and so, you, you know, you're, you're forced to kind of operate under those circumstances. So, um, you know, whatever I do, knowing that the back, knowing that the likelihood is that we'll always be a death penalty state, we, we just try to make sure that it's used in the most extreme cases, uh, and for the, and, and seldomly used for the most serious offenses. Um, I mean, I think that's probably the best that we can do in Alabama. Um, but for me, as, as you pointed out, um, you know, I just have a very difficult time figuring out how the state struggles to find humane ways to kill people, right? But at the same time, you think about it this way too, being in Alabama's, the Department of Justice said that being in Alabama's prisons is worse than the death penalty. So like, 
being sentenced to prison here is a death sentence and it's, it could potentially be a death sentence. I mean, Jeff Doug apparently can't manage the coronavirus within the facility, has no plan of action. So, you know, you're being exposed to an infectious, deadly disease that he has no plan for. Um, or you could be murdered or killed because of the violence there. You could overdose from a drug given to you by a CO. And let's keep in mind now, there's no visitation going on in, in prison right now. You can't go visit anybody. So um, how's the, how are the drugs getting there? You, you tell me. Um, so, uh, I, again, I, you know, uh, we, we've had that discussion about the drugs before, you know, trying to make sure that people can't figure out who, what, drug, what drug cocktail they're using because, you know, we don't want to scare the people who provide the drugs off. I mean, you know, it's just amazing to me, though, that the Department of Corrections can figure out how to get that done, but they can't, they can't do anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me, you, you, uh, you already started talking about the the final question I wanted to ask you, which was about the outbreaks of COVID in our prisons. Uh, do you think there's going to be any legal culpability here for what appears to be, uh, an un, as you've suggested, uh, an unsuccessful, uh, and, and, and maybe I hesitate to even say attempt uh, because I wonder if there's even an attempt being made to really uh, protect the prisoners from COVID. But but I'll just use that word anyway, an, an unsuccessful attempt to uh, protect them or mitigate the spread of COVID. Do you think there's going to be any litigation coming out of that? Um, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, aside from the litigation that we already have, uh, I, I would suggest, believe that that would probably just be another component of the of the um the lack of leadership and the dangerous conditions within the system that we have now um and you know from the very beginning of this um we went what three or four months where the or commissioner dunn was telling everybody that you know by the grace of god we don't have COVID in our facilities but he hadn't tested anybody yet. Don't test for it. You ain't got it. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, to this day, <laughs> I don't know if we actually had a massive testing protocol in our system. Uh, I mean, uh, because, uh, you know, it can't be money. Um, he's got millions of dollars from CARES Act money. And before that, uh, he had millions of dollars of, of COVID money to do that specifically was to test and try to find different ways to mitigate the spread within the facilities. But um, as somebody who's, as you pointed out, uh, Josh, uh, somebody who speaks out often about the prison system, I often hear from people uh, who are incarcerated and their families, and they say that, you know, there's no, there's no social distancing, there's no plan, there's no mask, um, there's no real plan in any, any of these facilities to mitigate the spread of this infectious disease. So. Um, in any other circumstances besides dealing with people that uh, the public generally doesn't care about, um, you would think that you'd have a very strong cause of action there. Um, the negligence alone should create it, but because we're dealing with people that um, folks are trying to forget exist, the likelihood is that, you know, I don't know how much um, 
what avenue you would have for redress in a situation like that. Yeah. Well, look, I, I know we've, we've, we've kept you over and, uh, and we appreciate you coming on. I, I will say that it's uh, just listening to, to y'all talk about uh, the uh, ADOC uh, coming up with a way, a new way to, to kill people, essentially. It's uh, it's, it's perfect. It's really kind of the perfect uh, stance for them, I would say, because it, they've, they've managed to solve the one problem that they don't have, which is killing people. Um, you know, and, and that's, and that really, it kind of sums up what, what we have with our prison system here is we, we have a, a bunch of people that, uh, we've tried to throw away and forget about. And, um, and then, you know, it just is, it's a shame. It really is a shame the way we've just discarded so many, so many people there. And we hear from them. I hear from them a lot. I know, uh, Eddie Burkhalter works with us, hears from them every day. Uh, talking about things that are going on. It's, and it's just a shame, but listen, I, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and I really do appreciate you keeping up this fight. And, um, and I, I, I hope at some point we can, we can get some folks to pay attention to this absolute crisis that's taking place right in front of us. I mean, not just, I mean, I think terminology is important. I think it's, this is an absolute humanitarian crisis. Um, and I don't think we should forget that. I, you know, people like to use the word criminal, inmate, and many of those things to, to forget that they're talking about a human. Um, so this is humanitarian crisis and our department of corrections and our pardons and paroles for, for that lack of, a, I mean, just as a system failure is so focused on building new buildings that they're willing to allow other humans to be collateral damage to get there. It's an, you're right. It's an absolute humanitarian crisis and, and crisis is not too strong a word. It may not be strong enough. Um, but, but and, and uh, you know, one thing that we didn't mention in this whole conversation, the words Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal never came up because it's not one of those problems. Right. And, and, and literally we waste money and it costs us lives to do this the wrong way. You're right, hundred percent right. There, there are states that have figured this out. You know, they're out there. They exist. Uh, you know, uh, decent prisons in America exist out there, and people have rehabilitated uh, prisoners and and uh, and have great success in doing so. Uh, Don't worry about it, Josh. We got we got critical race theory and big Texas <laughs> under control. <laughs> That's right. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna slide out. As Representative Chris Eagle, thank you again for uh, for for spending some time with us, and and hopefully we can we can get a message out here to somebody that'll listen eventually. Yeah, thanks, man. We appreciate you. Hey, everybody, if you wouldn't mind, uh, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review, or maybe not even a nice one, just a rating and a review. Uh, just let us know what you think about the podcast, and uh, we've gotten to where we read some of these reviews on the air, because some of them are uh, pretty funny and uh, clever, so be funny, clever, and you'll get your uh, review read on the air, and uh, the rating helps us out a little bit as well. So if you don't mind, leave us a nice rating and a review, or a terrible rating and a review, whatever you'd like to do. However you feel about the podcast, we appreciate your, your input, and uh, thanks for listening as always.